Mother's Day can just be tricky sometimes, can't it? Because we've got uh, so much joy and we want to celebrate our mothers. And then we also realize for some it's painful. Uh, so it's a day to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And um, I so appreciate Kristen's story. She's given us both. One thing that's so true of JJ and Olivia and all of our children and grandchildren is that they love to be watched. They love to be looked at. Hey, mom, watch this. Look at me. Look at me at the park. Look at me at t-ball. Look at me at the school play. You know, when our children come in and we're having a baptism, they kind of file in and they sit on these stairs, but not too much longer after they situate themselves, they look back. Who are they looking at? They're looking at you. They're trying to find you, mom and dad. Look at me. Watch me. Pay attention to me. And... And moms and dads, we look every time. We want them seen. And all of us can appreciate that. And all of us know what it's like to be a child. We want to be seen. We want to be seen. And I'll bet there's more than one mom here who wonders if she is ever seen. There comes a point in time when a mom begins to wonder if she's invisible. Nicole Johnson talks about this in a really pretty article, a beautiful article, uh, called The Invisible Mother. She said, one day I was walking my son to school. He's five years old. I'm holding his hand. We're about ready to cross the street. And the crossing guard said to him, who is that with you, young fella? He shrugged his shoulders and said, nobody. <laughs> nobody, Nicole wrote. My son is only five. I'm a nobody? But then after that, I would walk into the family room and nobody would notice. I'd say something to my family like, can you please turn the TV down? Nothing would happen. I mean, nobody would get up, even make a move for the remote. I'd stand there for a minute and then I would say again a little louder, would someone please turn the TV down? Nothing. Nicole said, that's when I started to put the pieces together. I don't think anyone can see me. I'm invisible. Of course. It all began to make sense. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids would walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. I'd think, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone. No one can see uh, me cooking or sweeping or preparing uh, both uh, office work while getting ready for home. And no one can see if I'm even standing on my head in the corner. No one can see me because I'm the invisible mom. Oh, some days they see my hands. I'm a pair of hands. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days I'm a clock. What time is it? Still other days, I'm a channel guide. What's the Disney Channel now? And still other days, a crystal ball. Where's my sock? Where's my phone? What's for dinner? Hands, clock, crystal ball, but always invisible. I was certain, Nicole wrote. 
I was certain that these were the hands that once held books, and these were the eyes that once studied history, and this is the mind that graduated from university, but, but now they've all vanished into the peanut butter, never to be seen again. She's going, going, gone, blub, blub, blub. The invisible mother. Anybody feel that way today? Well, today's scripture concerns a mother whose world treated her as if she was invisible. Her name is Hagar. And her story is in Genesis chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. The very first book of the Bible. It's on page 11 in your church Bibles if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And we meet Hagar, and hers is the story of invisibility and the God who sees. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, or Sarah, Abram's wife, or Abraham, had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her the angel of the lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to shur and he said hagar servant of sarai where have you come from and where are you going and she said i'm fleeing from my mistress sarai the angel of the lord said to her return to your mistress and submit to her the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, every, uh, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lachairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
This is God's word. So here we meet Hagar, uh, this immigrant from Egypt. She's in the household of Abram and Sarah. Her life takes place in the larger story of God's dealings with his people. God had called Abram and Sarai from Ur of the Chaldees and sent them to the land of promise. God had promised to make a great nation through them and uh, for them and then through them all nations would be blessed. And the miracle was that both Abram and Sarah were far beyond the age of childbearing. But God would do this. God would do this. A decade later, still no son. And they're in Canaan, and they began to wonder about God's promise. And so Abram and Sarah decided to do something. They decided to help God out. Usually, this complicates things. Always, this complicates things. Sarah said to Abram, just take my servant. Take my servant, Hagar of Egypt. Impregnate her that I would have a child. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was really a, quite a common arrangement. And it was legal, yet it wasn't wise. Not here. Because, you see, it represented a human solution to a divine promise. And whenever we try to accomplish God's plans through the world, we just make a mess of things. And that's what's going on here. And the phraseology of Genesis chapter 16 actually echoes Genesis chapter 3. As Eve took the fruit and gave to Adam, who thoughtlessly accepted, so Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abram, who thoughtlessly accepted. And both cases demonstrate a very human-centered way of striving after the things of God. And Hagar becomes objectified here. I mean, notice, Abraham and Sarah, they do not call her by her first name. To them, she's just my servant or your servant. Talk about being invisible. To them, she's a utility. She's a commodity. She's a means to an end. And the worldly way works at first. Verse 4, she conceived. See, it works. It's okay because it works. Well, Sarah didn't have the feelings after the pregnancy that she thought about before the pregnancy. And she, whose idea this was, was now filled with envy and jealousy and fury. And her perspective of both Abram and Hagar change. In verse 5, she accuses Abram. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. Abram's going, wrong? That word wrong is a strong word. It literally means violence. I've been violent. You've been violated. Wait a minute. I thought this was your idea, but how? And now Hagar is accused. And 
Verse 5 literally says, I gave my servant for your embrace, and she saw that her mistress was dishonorable. In, in other words, it, it became clear to both Sarah and Hagar that Hagar's pregnant womb heightened Sarah's barren womb. And Sarah had feelings that she didn't think she was going to have. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. It was too late now. And now things just get worse. Verse 6 says, Sarah dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, who is trapped in a, a system that just renders her invisible. No rights, no dignity, no freedom, no choice. And she's had enough. So she flees. She lives out her name's meaning. The word Hagar means flight. So she takes flight. She takes flight from a household where her body has been used to produce offspring for an infertile couple. Did Abraham and Sarah even notice when she ran away? And now she's in the wilderness. Very harsh place. She's at a spring of water. And that's where the angel of the Lord finds her. And, and even before Hagar speaks, the angel knows where she is and the angel knows who she is. And we've read her name in the narrative thus far. And for the first time, we hear her name spoken. Verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? That, that echoes Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? When God said to the man and the woman, where, where are you? Now, God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. I'm fleeing, Hagar says. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Oh, but that wasn't the whole question, was it? Because the question wasn't merely where are you fleeing from, but where are you fleeing to? Where are you going to? And, and she can't answer that, can she? she? She doesn't really know, does she? I mean, does she want to go back to Egypt? Does she even know what she wants? Does she even know that? She knows what she doesn't want. She doesn't want to be treated like an invisible person. She doesn't want to be treated harshly for that which isn't her fault. She doesn't want to be treated like a non-person. She doesn't want to be treated like she's invisible. And then the angel gives these hard words. Hagar, I want you to go back. The desert is no place for you, and it's certainly no place for the baby. It's not safe here. I see you. I see the child, and I see a great nation in your womb. Verses 10 through 12. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel said, behold, you're pregnant. You, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, Ishmael, the God who hears. The Lord has listened to your affliction. And oh, Hagar, 
He's going to be a handful, verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Just a heads up. The angel sends her back, and, and Hagar realizes her greatest need when, when that need is satisfied by God himself. And in verse 13, she names him El Roy. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. I have seen him who looks after me. I've seen the God who sees. I'm not invisible. God sees. What name would you give God right now if you could? What name would that be? The God who loves, the God who comforts, the God who is silent, the God who forgives, the God of a second chance. Whatever you choose actually says as much about your need as it would be about the character of God because it is through our need that we experience God in, in the deepest way. And so Hagar, the insignificant, invisible, and misunderstood servant is in fact very significant and very visible in the eyes of God. She is a matriarch of a nation. Did, did you know this? Hagar has the longest conversation of any woman and almost any man in the whole of the Old Testament with God. Hagar, the Egyptian servant, is the only person in the Bible who gives God a name. Up to this point, God self-identifies. He names himself Elohim, the creator Yahweh, I am that I am. El Shaddai, the Almighty. These are vast, majestic, big sky names of God. But here by the spring, she needs more than a big sky God. She needs a personal, intimate God and meets him. I have now seen the God who sees me. And she names the well a memorial itself. Bir Lachairoi, the well of the living one, who sees me. God sees me. I'm visible to him. He knows me. He knows where I am. He knows my coming and he knows my going. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? She learned that. What a difference in life that makes to know that we worship a God who sees. You see, the meaning of God's seeing is God's caring. To know that God sees is to know that God cares. I'm thinking of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? The quiet love of God where you just dare to sit and be loved and be seen and you don't have to perform. You can just be still. I'm thinking of Psalm 131. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is the God we worship, the God who sees. And that God sees means we're significant. That God sees means we're safe. That God sees means we're understood. That God sees means that we are free. Could it be that in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be doing what we're doing now except without sin, without sorrow, without suffering, without the presence of Satan, all of this under the watchful, attentive sight of our Heavenly Father who enjoys us as we enjoy our children and grandchildren at the park. And this promise is not just for the Hebrew people, but for all people. God's blessing upon Abram and Sarah was that the blessing would be to them and through them all nations would be blessed. All nations. And just as loving parents pleasure at their children's play, so to our Heavenly Father, to live under His attentive joy. Yes, this is what I was made for. This is what I was created to be. I don't know uh, if the thought of God seeing you makes you kind of cower or makes you courageous. But I'm telling you, for Hagar, it gave her the courage to go back even into a harsh environment because it's not going to get better once she goes back. In fact, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But she endures because she's living under the watchful care of the God who sees. Elroy. And someone might say, well, okay, Pastor, but you know, how come if God sees us, why doesn't he do anything about it? And you know what? He actually is. He actually is. You see, just as Hagar's story takes place in the larger story of Abram and Sarah, so Genesis chapter 16 is taking place in the larger story of God's attentive redemption. Just because you can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. And just because you think he's not there doesn't mean he doesn't see you. And just because I can't see him doing anything immediately doesn't mean he's not doing something. See, and and to be seen doesn't mean you don't fall. Uh, Jesus never said, no sparrow falls. He says he sees the sparrow that falls because falling is part of life in this sinful, broken world. When we chose our own independence, when we tried to help God out, well, that led to our fall, which led to our nakedness and shame, which led to our hiding, which led to our invisibility, and we hide. We don't want God to see us, but God still sees. He still sees, and he still cares, and he is at work restoring. 
And years after, Genesis 16, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael. Those words would echo to another young lady. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name not Ishmael, the God who hears, but Yeshua, the God who saves, Jesus. God sent his son who saw. He saw the Samaritan woman at the well, and he saw the widow giving her offering at the temple. He saw Jerusalem and wept, and he saw Peter's three denials. And from the cross, he saw his mother entrusting her to the care of the apostle John. And he who saw said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know who God is like? Look at me. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the Emmaus Road who couldn't see him. He's standing right next to him. You know, pain can actually prevent us from seeing God, and it can also be a, an occasion for seeing God. Jesus opened their eyes so that they could understand and see as he sees. And now, having ascended to his Father's throne and the sending of his Spirit upon his church, his body now, we are his eyes. Listen, it is not enough to simply walk through these doors and say, God sees me. How nice. No, we're not done. The message isn't over just with that. God sees us, has redeemed us, has brought us into his kingdom, has made us a part of his body so that now we who have been seen might be the eyes of God to see others. He's looking for people to love through our eyes. He sees us so that we can see, to be used by him to see. Yes, yes, that's it. Can we be a church that sees with God's eyes that those who might come here feeling like they're in a desert wilderness, can, be, can we be that spring the Hagars among us who feel estranged in a foreign land, can we be a people who with supernatural vision see and sense the pain and disruption of a world that sought to be on its own? Can we look on others with the eyes of Christ? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What does that mean? It means that God's eyes see us and God's eyes see others through us in Christ, through his spirit. I now see with his eyes and, and oh, what a beautiful and mature day it is when uh, my soul is flooded with the sight of God so much so that I don't need to spend that much time 
in the mirror, looking at myself and seeing myself and trying to validate myself. I've been validated by the one who sees the most important person in the universe. I see now where he's looking. I see who he's looking at. And I'm a, I'm a person on mission with the vision of God. So Nicole Johnson told about an evening where she got together with some of her girlfriends and while they were having dinner, one of the friends had returned from England. Nicole wrote, my friend turned to me with a beautifully wrapped package and said, I brought this for you. It was a book of the great cathedrals in Europe. Her friend wrote this on the inside of the book with great admiration for what you are building when no one sees. Nicole said inside the book, there's the story of this rich man who came to visit the cathedral while it was being built. He saw a worker carving a tiny bird on the inside of one of the beams up high. And the rich man was puzzled and asked the worker, why are you doing that? Why are you spending so much time carving that bird up there? Going to put a roof over it and no one will see it. To which the worker said, ah, God will. God sees. Nicole wrote after reading that, it's like God whispered to me, I see you. I see the sacrifices you're making. I see when no one around you sees, uh, no, no act of kindness you've done, no cupcake you've baked, no last-minute errand, no homework that you've helped. Nothing is too small for me to notice and smile over. You are building a great cathedral. You can't see right now what it will become, but I see, I see. Sisters in Christ at Windsor Road. As mothers, you're building a great cathedral. And yes, you may feel invisible some days. But one day, it is very possible that the world will marvel not only at what God has built through you, but at the beauty of your sacrifice, which is so very visible all the time to the God we worship, El Roy, the God who sees. Amen.